0: Because your headphones aren't plugged in, maybe. Well, yes. Did you learn yes. that?
1: Uh, all right. Now, can you hear yourself? Now I can hear myself. I can hear you. Fantastic. How do I sound? You sound fantastic. You sound—you okay. know—you sound like you're this far away. What do they call that? Is there a term for that in the industry? There's got to be, but I—but I don't know what it is. Um, I just think of it as hang loose. You know, like the old Hawaii thing. Okay. I hear that place is nice. Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever been? No. Come on.
0: Have you? Well, Chris, whenever you're ready, you can kick us off with your signature start.
1: All right, just making sure that I can be heard, that we can be heard. All right. Can we be heard? Can your voice be heard, Chris? In this digital era, everybody can be heard. It was a film I thought I would never appreciate, all signs and symbols. It got under my skin with performances, direction, and when it ultimately brought me to tears, when I had nothing else to give. I was left with only the sound of two people talking, talking loudly. I felt I would never enjoy a movie the same ever again. Full casting crew by Chuckler. Wow. Is that your Herzog? No, it's supposed to be like Calvin Klein's obsession. Oh. Because this is such an 80s movie. I see. Okay. <laughs> it's a fine
0: line between Herzog and Klein. Absolutely. I, even, I think I even the first line almost sounded like my first fucking. Oh, I see. That's your obsession ad. Yes,
1: that that's yeah. Wow, that's a way to bring it back. Yeah, well, You weren't even alive for that. Uh, really. I know, but I read about it in history class. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know they mention it in documentaries and stuff. Yeah. Well, the re- like I said, the reason I did that is because we are doing a very '80s movie today. Before you even say anything, Chris, let me just say this. Let
0: That's yeah. a hint of the things that are coming. I mean, I can't believe that I actually like a Carly Simon song <laughs> <laughs> from a movie in the 80s after what I went through with A League of Their Own. Yeah. This is the official music video for Let the River Run. Um, she's on the Staten Island Ferry, which is probably the one and only time in her life Carly Simon ever <laughs> boarded the Staten Island Ferry, because as we know, she's very much a child of privilege.
1: Uh, actually, I didn't know. I don't, I don't well, know. Sure. about sure. Car- have have Carly you heard Simon. of Simon
0: and Schuster? That's same Simon. That's her father. Wow. So yeah, look, I'm not holding it against her. I'm just saying. No, no, I just, yeah. You know. Well, we're going to get into the song later because there, there's some funny, interesting things about it. I just wanted to kick off the conversation with the, it's one of those song hooks that you just can't ever get enough of yeah. kind of playing comedically, you know? And I think periodically throughout this episode, like at least this drum sting.
1: And then when she starts wailing. So- <laughs> You know, like that. Like nothing about it made any impression on me, except for the drum. <laughs> the drum. The was track is so great. Press- the track is great. Oh, it's fair. Uh, well, well, we're gonna get into that later. Right.
0: Maybe you could subtly edit the soundtrack song underneath my description okay. that I'm about to read. <laughs> okay. Anyway, yes, we're here today to talk about 1988's Mike Nichols film, Working Girl. After experiencing a 1988 version of a Me Too moment with a coworker played by a we should have been paying attention, Kevin Spacey. Plucky Staten Islander Tess transfers to a new secretarial post on Wall Street, where her new boss, Katherine Parker, is a falsely confident corporate barracuda clothing herself in feminist togetherness and whose orthodontically improved Upper East Side rictus barely conceals her needy insecurity and ruthless ambition. When Tess's love life, with a pelt-chested young Alec Baldwin, falls apart due to his blatant infidelity and lack of ambition, Tess is compelled by work circumstances to pose as her boss, who stole Tess's idea for a perfect union between a big corporation and a radio network owned by a bearded but principled Southern rube? Tess's inborn business acumen and common sense draw in a good guy named Jack Trainer, whom she meets cute at a corporate event after having been given a Valium by her steam ceiling friend Cynthia. Jack is played by an in-his-prime Harrison Ford who looks like so much delicious, muscly man-pudding, and even pouts and wells up like a little man-baby, genetically engineered to push ovaries into overdrive. Impressing the imperious corporate raider Oren Trask, Tess's plan is brought to the deal-making stage before being upended by a meddling Catherine Parker whose brilliant use of crutches causes Tess to fade into the Shark Tank-like deep wood paneling, until an elevator denouement Outs the truth, and then Jack and Tess make toast of Catherine, and then they actually make toast. A brilliant ending has Tess uncertain whether to set up in the secretarial cubicle, as her own new secretary displays ambitions by using Tess's desk.
1: Well What do done. you think of that? I think that's fantastic. I, I'm glad that you focused on that ending. Well,
0: I mean, you know what I realized? I listened to last week's episode, and I, I can't presume that everyone has watched every movie, Like, yes. and we never, sometimes we don't give any synopsis of the film whatsoever, Right. I don't know if that's useful for anybody. Maybe it's useful if we make them at least hopefully entertaining and funny. Yes, right. I mean, I don't mean the writing style of that description to indicate a lack of sincere worship for how good Working Girl is as a movie. Wow. Well, I think as a piece of filmed entertainment, it is impeccably assembled and put together and... Unlike many films of its era, it has real depth and it has real subtlety and it has real layers to the characterizations, the filming. It holds up. It feels ahead of its time even today, mm-hmm. which is less appraise of the film and more criticism of how little we've
1: progressed as a society. Um, and I love it. It's yeah. great. Uh, I also loved it. This is the first time that I had seen it. This is another one what? that everything... Never saw Working Girl? No. How? Uh, I don't know. You know, I knew it was around. I knew it was supposed to be good, but it just sort of never... You knew it had a Carly Simon theme song. (laughs) I didn't know that until uh, reading about it after the fact. But it just sort of never... uh, Never got on your radar. Well, that's where your age difference from me comes in. And and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. Like you said, I do think that it was ahead of its time. And for something that is... On the surface, uh, a very fluffy piece of entertainment and is very obviously a fairy tale and overly simplified. At the same time, there are elements of it that give it ballast that are more complicated and more forward-thinking than your run-of-the-mill rom-com. I also had, like, a lot of nostalgia watching it by seeing the old computers. Mm -hmm, (laughs) Like, -hmm. like the the old styles of, uh, like, 80s hair and uh, all of those things were fun to watch. And then the actual, the ending of it and the theme that I think it comes to, I'd love to talk about whether it dates well or doesn't, but it seemed so of its time in a way that actually is very different from uh, from what people prize and think is important today. Interesting tidbit. The theme song, which has an
0: iconic life of its own, did you know that this song has a life today as an anthem amongst political activists who chant this? Originally, After Carly Simon had composed the song, and the song is a co-production basically between Carly Simon, who I believe wrote the lyrics, and Rob Mouncey, who's the composer. When I think of the song, the two most iconic things about it are that very 80s drum rhythm, which kicks in, and also, of course, Carly Simon's unique voice So apparently she she composed the song, they submitted it, Mike Nichols loved it. But then at some point in the in the editing or the film, Mike Nichols contacted her and said, I'm so sorry, we're not gonna use it. Um we did a test and we 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 used the Eagles witchy woman (laughs) over the opening. (laughs) And it's played really well. I think we're gonna go with that. So I did Matt play play a little witchy woman. This is one of those things that I love talking about on this podcast, the idea of this movie starting bizarrely with Witchy Woman, which does not work or fit at all yeah. with Tess commuting on the Staten Island Ferry to the land of grand ambition. And it also would have painted Tess in the such exact an opposite, un, uh, opposite and unflattering light. It has nothing to do with her. However it happened, they came back to their senses. And, yeah. and the Carly Simon opening song is perfect. I can't imagine the movie without it. And in fact, she won an Oscar- Mm-hmm. A Golden Globe and an Emmy or something? No. Why would
1: you win an Emmy? They might have just liked the song.
0: And ironically, or not, this was the only Academy Award this film won. Best song.
1: No kidding. Um, so anyway, opening, brilliant. Um, I was reading uh, Janet Maslin's original New York Times review, of course, December twenty-first of nineteen eighty-eight. Well, Pauline Kael's wasn't online at thenewyorker.com, I guess. Uh, that I don't know, <laughs> but I liked this one because there's so- certainly things that look so different now, specifically to jump to the end, spoiler, she and uh, Harrison Ford get together. And there's that scene where uh, they're getting ready for work together, mm-hmm. the harried mm-hmm. yuppie couple, power couple getting yep. ready to go. And I was watching that last night and thinking that to me seemed like a very 80s celebration of the yuppie lifestyle, lifestyle in a way that actually today— People would be. These would be the villains. The fact that what, they- because they're making breakfast together. <laughs> Frankly, yes. Oh, Chris, it would be ridiculous.
0: No, no. This I is mean- what it looks like in my house every morning. You have three. You have two, or you have three people in our case getting ready for for their day. And people are people are passing each other in a small galley kitchen. Thank you for the proper word, listener who knows who I'm referring to. Okay. Um, <laughs> And that doesn't make
1: them villains, Chris. No. What You're I'm making sa- toast and coffee. What I'm saying My is God. that this- the Says thing the guy that who was burned himself coffee, making coffee. Think, Maybe you're the uh, villain. <laughs> you ever think uh, about that? I'm, trust me. I was just being told yesterday <laughs> that I was. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> really? That you were a
0: villain? <laughs> or that you were the, the villain literature. of a certain piece of personal theater that was taking place.
1: Yeah, oh, it was definitely on a, on a, on a personal level. Oh well, what, uh, what? Well, that's what were you accused of doing? I don't know. Rightly it was or, a secondhand. Oh, it was a secondhand story that somebody was telling oh, somebody, you that somebody else. Oh, somebody referred said that to somebody ref- as Krapinyak. <laughs> really? Yes, <laughs> Krepinyak, <laughs> which is why I didn't even follow. But up. I would, if I, if I were you, I would want to know who it was, there, there, so there, I could take my revenge. There is some curiosity. Anyway. anyway, I didn't mean to say that they were bad, but I, but so wait, uh, so we are in a time bad. now where
0: because they make toast and coffee in an apartment while well, before going to work, that
1: makes them a villain, that no. makes them a white collar villain. No, what I'm saying is that today, people are so much more about the work life balance and the idea that you should get more sleep, and people are working too hard. So, this movie is so much about working harder and trying harder. I don't disagree with it. I thought I loved that scene because it seemed very much of a time capsule, and all of the signifiers that were used are signifiers that mean something different to people today. Okay. I, I mean,
0: the origin of the film came because the, the writer and or the producer saw in the early 80s a woman who, from the ankles up, was very chic, but she was wearing tennis shoes. Mm -hmm. And he says, in those days, that wasn't fashionable. I talked to Kevin, the screenwriter, about doing a story about those girls. The outsider with a face pressed against the glass, longing for all those shiny things inside the jewel of Manhattan. I think we've all seen people going to work with athletic sneakers, what have you, and then obviously changing once you get there so that you fit the bill in whatever corporate structure you're working in. So that was the origin of the movie. It had kind of a long and torturous route to get made. There's some good alternative casting. Did you read any of the- uh Who else? Okay, so originally- I don't know if Scott Rudin is was still a producer of this. Scott Rudin wanted Shelley Long to play Tess <laughs> because Shelley Long at the time was a massive TV star as a result of Cheers. And I guess in the way that this Rudinesque math works, that translated to a box off. I don't see Scott Rudin listed here amongst the producers, so perhaps... That's why I think in its circuitous route to production, it shed some producers and some other ideas for casting. So anyway, Shelley Long was desired for Tess, and Alec Baldwin was going to play the Harrison Ford role. Really? Yes. The only two stars at the time were Sigourney Weaver and Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford at the time was probably the biggest movie star in the world. Sure. And Sigourney Weaver um, was coming off Alien? No. I mean, I guess- Not coming off it.
1: Well, look. If we're talking eighty-eight, eighty um, aliens would have come out. That's by Seventy-nine, then. aliens was
0: eighty-six. Uh, so she did aliens, Half Moon Street, Gorillas in the Mist, which mm-hmm. was a very popular movie, and then this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think she was in that. She was in a flush of, of of a career peak, let's say, at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and originally, <laughs> Baldwin is Jack Trainer, which I can't really see. He's so perfectly cast as the Staten Island 'er ne'er-do-well would-be husband. But apparently, the studio didn't want to pay for Harrison Ford and Sigourney Weaver. They didn't want to pay the salary for two stars. And so then it changed, and then they said, actually, no, we do want to pay for Harrison Ford and Sigourney Weaver. And at the time when the studio didn't want to pay for Harrison Ford, Mike Nichols had talked to Alec Baldwin and said, like, okay, I think you're going to play Jack Trainer. Great, right? It's the main male part of the movie. Um... And the article in Hollywood Reporter says, Mike had to call Alec and say, look, I'm really sorry. Circumstances have changed. Would you do this other part? Alec understood and was so lovely about it. He came in and really nailed that character. It was an awkward adjustment. So just kind of funny, the movie that could have been. Mm-hmm. You could have had a movie that started with Witchy Woman, Shelley Long on the Staten Island Ferry, and Alec Baldwin as an 80s Wall Street white shoe type. Was it 80- <laughs> does it, just, does it already, already there, it doesn't even work.
1: Right, a sort of a, a higher-class version of the part he played in Glengarry Glen Ross. Exactly, yeah. A few years later. He's so good in this, Alec Baldwin. He is great. And uh, at first, I have to—I did not think that he was well-cast because I, I think of him as so, um, like, in a tuxedo and sort of erudite. Uh, so well, I'm like, always surprised when he pops up in these roles, and he's always great. Like, what is the other one? Uh, married to the Mob? Yes. He's like, you know what I mean? Like, um, But he's fantastic. He's, as somebody wants to describe— <laughs> It There's like, he's really a character actor with a leading man's good looks. And Absolutely. I think that that's, that's, that's so true. That's a good, true.
0: that's a good. And in fact, I think you could say probably his best work has always been when he
1: can sink yeah. into a good character actor role. Yeah. Like his uh, Jack Ryan is fine, but it's, yeah, it's sort of block compared to this, compared to. I want to see where this
0: falls in his film career, because I think it's pretty damn early. Yeah. It's a busy 88. He did, she's having a baby. Good movie. Beetlejuice, Married to the Mob, Working Girl, all in 1988. Well, I mean, obviously, he probably shot them a couple years prior to that. Right. Those all came out in 1988. And that really set him off in 89, 90, You have Great Balls of Fire, Hunt for Red October, Miami Blues, which is a really good, weird movie. You ever mm-hmm. seen that? I haven't seen it. Very good movie. Uh, Marrying Man, not a great movie. Glenn Glengarry, of course, the greatest cameo in the history of filmed entertainment. Yeah. I don't think there's any argument about that, is there?
1: Uh... I mean some people might say uh, Dame Judy Dench in Shakespeare in Love. Chris. Chris. Are we gonna have this today? Is this gonna be a problem throughout the f- are,
0: you, are you serious right now? Some people would say Dame Duty uh, what? Dame Duty Dench? <laughs> in what?
1: In Shakespeare in Love. What she the comes fuck in and Elizabeth at the end for like Oh my months. god.
0: You're putting that in the same category as Alec Baldwin and Glengarry Glenn Ross? Are you serious right now? I don't know. It's Chris, what world do you live in? No, the topic, the podcast is serious, Chris. These are serious conversational you're, moments. You're right.
1: I didn't say it was me who said it. No, no, no. If you're here to bandy
0: about and have fun, you might be in the wrong place. They're probably the same people that march in the streets to let the river run. Hit it again, Matt. The greatest Stand on a star and place a trail of Melanie Griffith as Tess, is fantastic. Um, I read a a single word that really summed up her performance. You know what the word is? Um, Working? Hardworking? Singular. Hmm. It's singular in the sense that it's almost hard to imagine any other actor doing that part the way she did it and embodying it the way she embodied it. I mean, she is that part so convincingly and believably. And her ability as an actor... It mm-hmm. is a singular performance. It's kind of crazy that, although she was nominated, uh, that she didn't win the Academy Award. I mean, what was it? What was this movie up against in that year? Well, I'm glad you asked, Chris. Thank you. Because I happen to have that handy here. So, in the sixty-first Academy Awards, the Best Picture nominees were Rain Man, Accidental Tourist, Dangerous Liaisons, Mississippi Burning, and Working Girl. Wow. And of those, Rain Man won. Mm. Okay. Uh, Nichols was nominated for best director, best actress category, Jodie Foster for the accused, Glenn Close, dangerous liaisons, Melanie Griffith, working girl, Meryl Streep and Sigourney Weaver for gorillas in the mist Hmm. and Jodie Foster won for the accused. Now. Okay. I get it. It's an issue film. Uh, that's a very heavy tortured performance. It's an actor kind of flaying themselves open on the screen. I understand why that would win, but. You know, yeah, dangerous common- liaisons, cry in the dark.
1: I don't even mean, you know what cry in the dark is. Um, Isn't cry, is that the- is that the one where the baby, my baby ate my baby. dingo? Uh, Ding, dingo, <laughs> I, is that I, how it works? I forget which one ate which, but I know there was a dingo and a baby and- Somebody got eaten. Somebody got eaten. Where it's really interesting is that both Joan Cusack and
0: Sigourney Weaver were nominated for Best Supporting Actress for this movie. Ah. Um, potentially splitting the vote, a la uh, The Favorite. And Gina Davis won for The Accidental Tourist, which there's a great anecdote about- Gina Davis and Melanie Griffith kind of both being up for the role in Accidental Tourist. And Melanie Griffith's agent has a story where, uh, I guess she'd had to kind of rebuild her career. She'd had some substance abuse problems, Melanie Griffith. Huh. And... Her agent describes that they had kind of really had to work hard to get this kind of moment in this opportunity and a really moment opportunity where nobody was really that excited about her being, getting this role. She wasn't a star. Um, she wasn't someone who was on the radar of producers. And as they got her on Mike Nichols' radar and had her come in and audition, um, you know, she's got, a, she's got a great anecdote in this thing I'll just read. She says, you have to fly to New York tomorrow and you're going to read for Mike Nichols. So I splurged on a beautiful white linen suit. I thought I would look really cool and very businesslike, very Tess McGill. I got to New York and it was 80 degrees. I was so hot. I walked into the room to meet Mike, but it wasn't just Mike, it was Doug Wick and every fucking bigwig that was involved with the movie. There were like 12 people in there. They asked me to pick three things to read, and I really had a hard time doing that. I said, I'll read anything. I'll go through the whole script. Let's just start at the beginning. I obviously didn't do that, but I did read for them and they said, Thank you. And I left. Can you imagine coming in and be and having to? this one moment in which, I mean, you're an actor, you tell me. There's so many things that can be going on in that one moment and you have to somehow convince a room full of people that you're the person.
1: Yeah. How the hell do you do that? Maybe you're the wrong guy to ask. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> the wrong guy to ask. <laughs> well, the, but the, the harrowing part of that story for me, guy, should you pick three things. That's what I actually wanted to ask you.
0: When they say that, they mean pick three things from the script? Well, yeah. Jesus. It puts the weight on the wrong person in the room to make a right choice.
1: I think the argument would be that it's like, no, no, it's not so much putting the weight on them. It's like, whatever you think would display what you think you can bring the role. I
0: know, but what if you role. chose the wrong thing in their mind? But, like, I mean, it, the,
1: the, exactly. Sometimes these auditions are more like meetings and they're like trying to get a sense of the person. And so therefore what they would bring to the character. But, but in a way now,
0: knowing the movie, maybe her sort of willingness to please in a room full of powerful men in the right way mm-hmm. came across in, in a manner that they recognized. What her agent said, it was kind of funny, was they had built to this moment where she had some choices again, and the Accidental Tourist script and Working Girl were both available to her. And she says they went away, and, and the agent says she told her whoever plays Muriel in Accidental Tourist could win the Academy Award, and whoever does Working Girl will be a star. Uh, and she says that Griffith went upstairs for like an hour, thought about it, came downstairs and said, okay, I made a decision. And the agent said, who are we? And Melanie said, I want to take a shot at Working Girl. This is the one that's right for me. I'm not quite ready for Accidental Tourist. So she made that decision. And then the irony was, I believe she presented the Academy Award to um, Gina Davis Davis. (laughs) for Accidental Tourist, but this movie did launch Melanie Griffith's career. And as she says... In a great quote, I think, for any actor, she says, I didn't stop working until I stopped working. (laughs) Which kind of says it all, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind, a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick, co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76, and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and C Nation. Out of Jack's mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. So
0: that's how they ended up with Melanie Griffith, who I think it's fair to say this is mentioned in other, this is mentioned in the Hollywood Reporter oral history of the movie, so I'm not idly speculating. I think you can see on the screen, I think she might have still been struggling with some drug or alcohol issues while they were making this movie. And as someone says in the oral history, even more amazing than that she turned in the performance that mm-hmm. she did. You know, no one can play that tequila scene as well as she does without knowing exactly what the yeah. fuck she's talking about. Yeah. Um, this The scene here is when they, uh, she has engaged in some... Uh, She's adopted the identity of her boss and is crashing a Wall Street after work cocktail party to look for Jack Trainer, whom she meets cute, without knowing he's who he is.
2: No, no names. No business cards. No, you must know so-and-so. What
3: is this? No
2: resumes. Let's just meet like human beings for once.
3: Well, it's nice to meet you, whatever your name is, but I really do have
2: to go. Please, please, one drink.
3: Okay, one drink, but I'm buying...
2: Okay, but it's an open bar.
3: Right, I knew that I meant it. If it wasn't, I would be buying.
2: Yeah, uh, tequila gold.
3: Tequila?
2: Yeah, I promised myself that when we met, we'd drink tequila. No Chardonnay, no frog water real drinks (laughs) these things are usually so boring
3: (laughs) I wouldn't know power to the people
2: Little
3: people. Oh boy, boy oh boy oh boy oh boy, oh boy,
2: oh boy. <laughs> You okay?
3: Mm, I'm fine. Right. I'm just fine. I took a um, antihistamine before <laughs> and it just makes a nice little bus. Oh. Wow.
2: I didn't know they let bad girls into these things.
3: Do I look like I
2: don't belong here? No. Hmm. No, no. I'm sure you're a real ace at whatever it is that you do, do.
3: Damn straight.
2: But how you look.
3: I have a head for business and a bod for sin. Is there anything wrong
0: with that? So much of what's great about the movie is contained in this one scene. The performances. The writing is so sharp. And the directing and the editing, the pacing, it's just,
1: it's masterful. And they're so good together. They really are. They have great chemistry. Great scene. Great scene. And she, uh, watching it a second time. and She's so good at it. She is fantastic in it. When she's not speaking, like her reaction shots are fantastic. So good. Not only in this, but I think my favorite, and actually it was a little bit heartbreaking, the scene uh, after their first night together. Mm -hmm. And in the morning, and he takes the call from Catherine. Yes. And her reaction.
0: That's an amazing scene because they both have a secret mm -hmm. and they both know it, but neither of them knows each other's secret. I thought as actors, it's such an interesting scene to play. That's the kind of thing I think about this movie that most everyone ascribes it to Mike Nichols, even though he's not the writer of the screenplay, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I think all the actors- And probably even the screenwriter himself, Kevin Wade, says this in in many places, that people who had the experience to work with Nichols as a director, it's just not only the environment that he created on set, but the degree to which he went through the script line by line with people and talked it out. Mm -hmm. And they also had a period of rehearsal, which was atypical Mm -hmm. and is atypical, where Sigourney Weaver talks about how they were able to really go through the script and talk about each scene and really rehearse. Yeah. You know, which I think as a film actor, you probably don't really get
1: very much. Sure. And th- the and the thing that I saw with her in that is on top of the fact that they both have secrets, there's also, you see her worrying about being slotted into a place, which I think is so much of what mm-hmm. Tess's arc is, is trying to break out of people's expectations of her by virtue of her gender, by virtue of her class. But here in this case, she's like, oh my gosh, this guy has somebody else and now I'm becoming sort of the other woman mm-hmm. uh, and the sort of heartbreak of it as you could tell that she's already developed feelings for him. She also has her ambitions. Like there's just so much going on. She has this with everybody in the movie. She's great with
0: Alec Baldwin. Even something as throwaway away as this doomed romance from home that you're going to leave behind. It's imbued by both of them without an insulting take on an outer borough type. 100%. And it treats it like she cares. He cares. It's not so simple that she came in to their own home and saw a naked woman riding him and is done and never looks back. It's not that simple. The scene at the bar, Cynthia's engagement party, which by the way, did you notice who has a bizarre cameo in that scene? David Duchovny. David Duchovny, unspeaking cameo. (laughs) I
1: saw him listed in the IMDb. Talk this cast. I I kept kept looking for him and the only time I could actually see him was in uh, Cynthia and Blonde Guy's wedding. wedding. Oh, I didn't see him in the wedding. I saw him in the party. There's one cat of like a group scene and it actually looked like he was trying to get off camera. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> that, that to me is the stuff that elevates a movie like this. The quality of the screenplay is really high, but I think that the choices made in those moments, those have to come from the actors and also from the director allowing that to emerge. These reaction shots, so much of the humor, so much of the emotion of the movie is not overstated. So much of it is allowed to happen visually, mm-hmm. which is always to me the mark of a director who really understands what we're doing here. The visual comedy of the movie alone is fantastic. He's yeah. a great comedic director, and the it, it's edited brilliantly. I'm thinking of the scene after this scene we just watched where the Valium kicks in, and she's completely passed out. He comes out of the party, and he sees a taxi cab with the doors open and this incredible pair of legs tantalizingly waiting for him. And he gets to the cab, and she's passed out. Uh, And to let that play, you're not really experiencing that as an actor on set because you don't really get to see it all put together. But he has the confidence to know that when you put it all
1: together, it's going to work. It's going to work, yeah. Besides the comedy, the drama, just to go back to the relationship between Mick and Tess. At the wedding, you can see that it's not just... That both of them realize that they are not meant for each other. And that actually Doreen and Mick are probably better for each other. Like there's a—the rancor of somebody cheating is sort of past a little bit and a maturity on both of their parts. Tess is such an interesting character because, you know, she to me is defined not just by her intelligence, but by her focus and willing to sort of like work. Mm -hmm. And even though she bends the rules of the system— she is somebody who's very much wants to be part of the system, which yeah. is again another thing that I think is sort of so, I think if it were made today, it, w- it would look at the system with a capital S very differently.
0: Sure. Uh, After she catches him cheating, Cynthia and her fiance are having a engagement party. Okay, toast. We need a toast. Toast!
2: Thank you, thank you. For me and Tess and everybody here, may your life together be long and happy. And may the road always rise up to meet you.
0: Yeah. Hey, when are we gonna toast the two of you, Mick? Yeah. <laughs> well,
2: we haven't uh, really discussed it. I mean, not recently. You don't discuss it, boy. You just
1: ask. That's right. Here? Yeah. yeah. Now? Now. Yeah. On your knees, man. Come on. Do <laughs>
2: it. Me, y- <classes> oh. <tiếc prescribed> yes. <hand> Tess, will you marry me? Maybe. Oh. That's an answer.
3: You want
0: another answer? Ask another girl. Alec Baldwin. There's so many subtle moments in that scene that are timed so
1: great. I had forgotten about not only that Denise. Gets Denise it, cutaway you is, see is amazing. The cutaway to her. You see uh, Cynthia. Yes. Knowing how cringeworthy it is. Yep. Melanie Griffith. There's Fantastic. So much
0: goes on. What's amazing about that one scene is it starts out in one place and then it slowly starts sliding to a place of discomfort that we know. And Cynthia, Doreen, and Tess know, but in a perverse way, Alec Baldwin's character does not know that it's heading to this disaster area. And the way that that's expressed with their facial expressions, and again, Melanie Griffith, who is performing the expressions of someone who understands that she has to get through this party, and that it's not real for her, that this is over, and. If he's going to do this thing, she's going to bat it away with comedy. But the look on her face in so many of those cutaways is incredible. And even Doreen, who really only has like one line in the movie, even her cutaway, it it doesn't make fun of her. It shows she's about to cry. She understands how awkward it is. Yeah. Even Alec Baldwin, like he's a heel, but he's not a bad guy. Like he he conveys both of those things through his genuineness, the trust of the camera and letting – even that scene at the end, right right, 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 when he's when he's looking at her and saying, you know, will you marry me, Tess? The camera holds on him for a bit. I see so
1: many elements of like, let's trust that we're that this is going to work once we do it. It's just a piece of film. That it's just a good time at the movies. Yes, and yet it still is able to contain all that. And uh, just watching some of those scenes a second time within twenty four hours, like realize like, wow. Uh, I think I was reacting to some of that stuff without realizing it because it's just so integrated Mm -hmm. into a pretty well-worn form. Joan Cusack, first of all, let's just stop down for a moment to
0: appreciate that Joan Cusack has been stealing movies for what, 40 years now? I don't know how long. Every film that she is in. Always the best part. (laughs) She is so good in this. Um, She has a really funny quote about how into uh, portraying this character she was. (laughs) She said, um, I remember being really idealistic about it, too. I came up with this idea that I should get paid what real secretaries get paid. My dad was like, you're crazy. No (laughs) one's going to even know that. (laughs) <laughs> so she was like goes to Mike Nichols and she's, she's like, like I'll know I, I think that I think that I, you should pay me what a Wall Street secretary would make per week because I, I think and he's
1: he's like yeah we're not gonna do that <laughs> um, a, a side thing an actor was once telling me he uh, had a small part and so he's you know one scene two scene and he just happens to be sort of in the back never says anything and then the director's like okay we're gonna do this scene and the car's gonna pull up and then you, you, you're, gonna get out, and you you're gonna get out and you're gonna get out and you're gonna say this line he's and the guy's like, but I built this whole character thing where actually my character doesn't talk because. Oh, no. And the guy's like, uh huh. Uh-huh. Anyway, <laughs> lose that. So now you get the point.
0: <laughs> well, you know, have we have we mentioned the great uh, our colleague Paul's anecdote about his first day on the soap opera? No. Oh, this is a brilliant story, which I I don't think he'll mind me telling. Anyway, we have a colleague Paul who graduated from a very well regarded acting college, hits New York, and literally the day after he gets to New York or something, he lands a recurring role on a big soap opera shooting in New York. And it's like a bad guy role. He shows up. He's got to wear like a leather jacket, have his hair combed back, right? And he will he tells this story so hilariously where he's like, I, in my mind, thought I am a movie star. I have, I have, I have arrived. I've made it. And he shows up on the set and they're going to shoot a scene where he has to throw his leg over a big Harley Davidson parked in one of those horribly fake park-like settings that they do on soap operas. And so he gets down early, all full of enthusiasm and he's looks at the motorcycle and he's practicing how he's going to expertly haul his leg over it. And he hears a disembodied voice coming from above the rafters that goes, you, you, he kind of looks around. Yeah. You don't, don't do that. Don't, don't touch the motorcycle. (laughs) It was the director, right? The director who like never comes down to the floor. He directs in like a skybox because it's just about brutal efficiency. Don't, don't touch that. Don't do
1: that. (laughs) And that's how actors' dreams are dashed. Oh, yeah. Well, look, soap operas will do that to you. Yeah. Uh, have you ever opers, been on a soap? Y- yeah, never for like a recurring thing, but I've done, you know, a day here, a day there. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, they are it's – a, it's a pity. I wonder, you know, who will make the docu- the great documentary about soap opera Because they that really would be were really fun. incredibly efficient. And the actors were, in a way, like it's easy to sort of sometimes knock some of the no, actors. you got to have respect for the craft. And you have to have respect for the craft because they get the the – Pages in the morning. Yep, they work on it. They they're able to bring it. You're Ten I, pages a day. I mean, yeah, they go through a lot. <laughs> so it's it's pretty amazing. And there was I remember one woman. You know, there was a scene being filmed. A girl was uh, and they were doing the the um, rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And the girl was crying, and somebody else's side watching the monitor. She's like, she gave it, it in the rehearsal. rehearsal. Save it. For Save the it for time, the screen. You know, and she did fine when she got to the thing. <laughs> but it was still like knowing that. And uh, just to tell my own quick story was yes. uh, I once... <laughs> Opera. Uh I had to play a policeman and the policeman's friend. This is your a, second policeman role that you were cast in. Weren't you a policeman in that Polish movie? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yep. Okay.
0: So uh, weird because you're not at all police like.
1: Yeah, well. I, I I was a bigger guy, I guess, <laughs> at the time. So
0: you looked more imposing. I think so. Okay. I think that's probably all they were going for. As opposed to now when you get when you don't get cast as like uh guy trying to pick up hooker. <laughs> Once you've but
1: made that, the, we want you beat your guy, what was I was playing. So anyway, your cast is a policeman, and uh, there's somebody in, the, and the chief of police has a friend who's got a daughter, somebody, and something happens, and this guy is supposed to walk through a door, and the police, the uh, police chief's friend is supposed to be like, oh, that guy's a killer, and he's supposed to run out and mm-hmm. jump the guy, and then I think they were supposed to cut to commercial, and then when they cut back to sure. commercial, me and this other policeman were supposed to be taking the guy off, sure. And I guess they probably explained this okay, <laughs> but I don't know if I wasn't listening too closely or whatever. <laughs> uh, but I was like, I think I, I got the the gist of it, you know. For your so you weren't paying members. attention it's to the I, director. I don't know if I was were, or wasn't. Yeah. All that I know is what like, happened was <laughs> <that> the, <laughs> the police the police chief's friend comes out, tackles the doctor, and I and I sort of realize, it, and I'm like, <laughs> and I don't want to be late, so I jump on him and like and rip him off the the, the guy, and. uh Everyone's like, cut, cut. Okay. And I was like, okay, good. And uh, the guy who ripped off, he's like, "Uh, you know, (laughs) that was supposed to happen, I think, after the commercial break. And then the director happens to be coming down. He's like, no, 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 I think that worked great. I think we'll cut. It's more efficient that way. We'll sort of cut as you're struggling, and then we'll come back and Sure. And I was like, okay, good. And the director walks in, and the guy's like. But you know, I don't know that it really makes sense. I was like, "Oh, talk to the director, man." It's like, <laughs> it's like no, but you would know the director bought I'm, my improv, man. That, you would that's know your that I am the, the chief's friend. I was like, "Yeah, but that's when you look over says, the guy's, oh! that's when you look
0: over the guy's shoulder and and wave hello to an imaginary person on the set and just walk away. <laughs> your work is done." Um, Joan Cusack also said one of the brilliant things about the movie was that the hair and makeup guy uh, said that the hair and the teasing and the makeup should only take as long as the ferry ride. So 20 minutes. Hmm. Like they wanted the verisimilitude of the hair and the makeup so that it was believable. Like this is what they would do. They would do their hair and makeup on the Staten Island Ferry. I thought that was a really cool part. And of course, if we're going to talk about John Cusack, we have to play this scene um, from the movie. This
3: is it. It needs some bows or something. No. It's simple, elegant, yet makes a statement. Says to people confident, a risk taker, not afraid to be noticed. Then you hit him with your smarts. Here she is. $6,000? It's not even leather.
0: It's iconic. Yeah. I mean, it's simply <laughs> iconic. <laughs> that gets quoted to this day. God. Why is she so good?
1: Uh, Tell me as an actor why she's always been so good. Well, I think she, I think like a lot of the performances that, that I have singled out and that I think actually Melanie, well, a lot of the performances that I've singled out over the course of this this podcast, she just lives in whatever she is doing and it feels so unforced and so non-performative and natural. And I guess it does help that she does have a sort of an exaggerated Uh, character-y sort of look so that, you know, that that will help her be memorable and some of the things be unique uh, in a way that somebody with a more bland look might not have. But Mm -hmm. she, like her brother, and, you know, they're sort of famous Chicagoans and that certainly at the time that they were coming up, that sort of Chicago tradition of just naturalism and realism Mm -hmm. are so bred into, into them.
0: But she also contains such... Humor and mm. warmth. Sorry, I want to play the scene after that. Such humor, warmth, and self-deprecation, also in anything that she does. Like she always gets the best friend role. This scene here in the movie, to me, is like the Joan Cusack masterclass scene. It's a scene in which uh, this is, I think, part what you're referring to is this is the morning after her meet cute with Jack Trainer. Melanie Griffith Tess doesn't remember what did or didn't happen yet, and she's at her desk. In the secretarial pool, because Sin had given her a had muscle given her, relaxing, had given her a Valium. And then she
1: had those a oh, Valium, rather. She had a
0: Valium. She had the tequila, and blacked then she had out. The so she wakes up in her underwear in Jack Trainer's bed, uh, and and in a reverse does the traditional guy route, which is to slink out of the apartment before he wakes up. Mm-hmm. So she's at her desk, and she doesn't have any idea what happened, but she's pretty sure the worst has happened. May I help you, Jack
2: Trainer, to see Miss
0: McGill?
3: Let's give her a shout, shall we? You do, sir. Uh, Mr. Jack Trainer to see you, Miss McGill. Thank you, Cynthia. Hold all calls, Miss McGill. Yes, Cynthia. Thank you. Can I get you anything, Mr. Trainer? Coffee, tea, me? <laughs> Isn't she a riot? That'll be all, Cynthia.
0: <laughs> brilliant, 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 brilliant. Sorry. Sorry. I'm trying to stop it, but it's playing. This is what happens sometimes, Chris. I understand. It's playing of its own. Do you have any?
1: If you have like a glass of water, I don't even know what to do. Pour it on the
0: computer. It's like, (laughs) it's not even a tab open and yet it's playing. How is that possible? How can I stop it?
1: I don't know. Anyway, um, how
0: many different things does she do in just that essentially throwaway scene? She's the supportive best friend. She's the shocked coworker who feels a little put upon to all of a sudden have to adopt a subservient role. Yeah. She's the, then when she s- s- switches into comedy effect, once Harrison Ford shows up in the scene, let's go give her a shout, shall we? I mean, <laughs> the performativeness and then when she's miming and doing all the things behind Harrison Ford's back, it's so fucking yeah. good. I yeah. mean, just, I could
1: watch her over and over again in this movie. Yeah. God, she's hilarious. Well, when did she become so great? Like, what would be the Joan Cusack defining role? Mm. Good question. First movie role, Married to the Mob. Oh, I forgot. She, was,
0: was she on, early on? She was
1: on Saturday Night Live for one season. Yeah, for one season. Was that the the like sort of infamously strange season uh, between yeah, the sort of old guard and six? Yeah. Okay. She was in My Bodyguard. Broadcast news. God, that's
0: a great movie. I would love to do that. Did you ever see that? No. Um, Let me answer for you, Chris. No. Yeah, no the, oh, my God, Are you serious? Old sort of after school specials. Oh, oh whoa, whoa, whoa! whoa. <laughs> Back the fuck up. <laughs> Have you seen My Bodyguard? Uh, I'm trying to take a look. See, uh, I don't no, think so. Trust me. You haven't seen it. Because if you just dissed it the way you just did, you have no idea what you're even talking it's, about. It's okay, hard to tell. Anything with Matt Dillon, they all sort of blend together. Okay. We're going to do this movie. Because <laughs> okay. I cannot okay. live in a world where you talk shit about a movie as great as My Bodyguard. And I'm going to tell you right now, Chris, because I'm your friend, uh-huh. there are people listening to this specific section in their cars. And they are looking <laughs> askance at the mere idea of your existence in the world you'll watch it in okay. between the time that we're taping and that you send this off to matt and oh, i want i don't know and i want you to insert <laughs> i want you to insert a mea culpa which will come naturally to you you don't have to fake this for the podcast <laughs> yeah, sure. you're gonna watch it you say you know what chris here i have to interject i do feel foolish um jason was right uh my bodyguard is a beautiful and touching coming-of-age story which is surprisingly layered and is so smart about the way that young men form friendships and test bonds. And I stand corrected, it's a brilliant movie. (laughs) that I should not have belittled. That's what, that's what the <laughs> listeners want to hear from you, Chris, in order to get I see back what, in their good graces. I see,
1: well, we we'll You know what,
0: Chris here. I have to interject. I do feel foolish. Um, Jason was right. Ah, My bodyguard is a beautiful and touching coming of age story, which is surprisingly layered and is so smart about the way that young men form friendships and test bonds. And I stand corrected. It's a brilliant movie that I should not have belittled. And this is Chris. You know a moment yeah. in a movie where like you the listener know something the character doesn't know yet and and so as such the joke is on the character who's yes. overconfident in their ignorance <laughs> that's you okay so anyway you'll you watch that yeah, your homework is to watch that so wow she was in that cutting loose 16 candles The girls one i remember that i think that's the one where she had the headgear <laughs> if i'm not mistaken um,
1: i remember that i didn't make make th- make the connection. Great, of
0: that great, great in broadcast news. Say anything, she plays her brother's sister. Men Don't Leave, My Blue Heaven. Um, so to answer your question, when did she become herself? I'm going to say it's, it's as far back as like 16 Candles, yeah. like one of her first two or three movies. Certainly by broadcast news I was or say, say, say I think- anything, you know, I mean, that's like by that point, she's firmly established as just the dependable best friend character. Yeah. And she's more than that. I don't want to just pigeonhole
1: her as just the best friend. And that's what makes her so great is I think taking those stock roles and breathing more into it. Full cast and crew is brought to you by Behemoth from Monkey Brain Comics. Behemoth is the dirty dozen meets the fly with little Spider-Man thrown in. Kids are turning into monsters and the government steps in to keep things quiet. Some are never heard from again but others are forced on suicide missions on behalf of a world that hates them as part of Project Behemoth. Find it on monkeybraincomics.com or Comicsology today.
0: Harrison Ford is peak, as I said, he's peak Harrison Ford in this movie. I mean, this is, he has matured now into the epitome of 80s leading mandom. Mm-hmm. And he displays a full arsenal of Harrison Ford Tics and tricks to perfectly manipulate our emotions and and just become so hunky and and lovable.
1: Specifically, in the wedding scene. I don't know if it was the extras were directed to do this or if they just happened. But like when he the, sucks down the when fruity he drink, down the things and the th- the extras around him are like mugging and <laughs> slobbering so like, mugging, a, yes. like a Tex Avery cartoon. At like they didn't have to. Spot.
0: It was everything. You know what's everything? The Carly Simon theme song. Hit it, Matt! Hey, this is Matt the Engineer. Jason, I know this thing won an Academy Award, a Golden Globe, and even a Grammy, but I've heard it enough. I can't do it anymore. So much of the comedy in the movie veers from really broad slapstick, including in the scene you're talking about, just the quick drinking of a tall, fruity drink is played to hilarious effect. Um, There's... Uh, what do you call it when you're sort of like bumbling and doing physical stuff? A What? A lotsee? A What the fuck is
1: that? <laughs> Sorry. When- oh my God. What has happened to you today? No, we had had a long discussion about this on the notebook app. <laughs> I thought this was like a callback <laughs> because I was editing
0: it. I wish that the viewers could have seen the unbridled joy with which your face lit up. <laughs> but, slapstick. Slapstick. Slaps. <laughs> Oh. oh my god I don't know what's no, wrong I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I've been slapped That changing in the office that's a funny scene yeah see that's another great example of brilliant comedic staging where the comedy is happening on the other side of the window and the other side of the blinds and it's just a scene where Harrison Ford is making a phone call and changing his
1: shirt. It would be so easy to like get frustrated or get mm-hmm. angry and all of those things which would have destroyed the comedy of it. He underplays it and it takes a perceptive both actor and director to know not to make those, those easy choices. Uh,
0: other scenes, I mean we were talking before about the visual humor. My favorite one is the scene where they're strolling and he has a bit of cream cheese on his lip and, it, and it's Left
1: there for long enough for you to wonder, yes, is this like a mistake? And you know, the movie is such a fairy tale and simple in so many ways, and yet that's another place where you get a color and a depth to that character that I sort of wasn't expecting. The fact Mm -hmm. that he did have some kind of fear and desperation about his place in the world, too, that it's not just, um, yeah, it's not just easy street once you get to this. Another hilarious thing about the wedding
0: scene, which is so fucking good is and again this is how prescient the movie is we're living in a time now where apparently if you're a white politician you've behaved like such a fucking moron that you colored your skin and put on wigs and donned blackface and and pretended to be curtis blow um i mean my god In this movie, Trask's daughter's wedding theme is the worst colonialist Caribbean-themed party. (laughs) It's so brilliantly staged, from the music and the guys with the like red stripe bottles and the the the, helmets, helmets. Yeah, (laughs) and her dress, which is like straight out of uh, Gone with the Wind. And speaking of Trask, the recently departed Philip Bosco, this era of movies is like the era where that sort of. It's not really a cameo. Like, he's important. He's, in a lot of ways, the engine that drives much of the plot. Him embodying the imperious, unquestioned power is such an important part of the movie working. And her charm of him in the wedding scene. Excuse me.
1: The woman that's dancing with Oren. What's her name?
3: Oh, oh, Elizabeth Stonefield?
1: That's right. Uh, Liz? Beth? Bitsy. Bitsy. That's right.
3: Jack.
2: You want to do it? Do it. Excuse us. Bitsy, don't break my heart and tell me you don't remember me. Of course I do. <laughs> Excuse us.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you talk about a small world, huh? <laughs> I mean, here we just met, and yet I feel as though I've spent so much time working with you, mm-hmm. in a way. I'm in mergers and acquisitions at Petty Marks. Oh.
2: Well, I really wish we were having more luck with your team. And
3: so do I. So do I. I've been trying to set you up with a radio network. But my bosses, they think that you're just stuck on acquiring television and won't even listen.
2: Well, that's not true.
3: Well, that's what I said. I said that the man who in 1971 looked into the future and saw that it was named Microwave Technology, the man who applied Japanese management principles while the others were still cowtowing to the unions, mm-hmm. the man who saw the Marvel breakup coming from miles away, I mean, this man did not get to be this man. You, I mean, by shutting himself off to new ideas. Am I right or am I right?
1: Looking back with hindsight, it's not a great plan. So they are coming uninvited to his daughter's wedding to talk to him about business that he doesn't necessarily. Right. And you would think that because, you know, she had already almost screwed herself Mm -hmm. by bending the rules before that she would have learned. But, oh, no. The way that scene is staged, too, when
0: we're watching it now. Not only does Harrison and Melanie Griffith do this little dance twist in order to get to Oren Trask, they do it twice, and the camera catches them on the back end of the turn both times. But then when they approach Bitsy and Trask— the camera is going around behind the other guests in order to catch their faces just as they speak their lines.
1: Because mm-hmm. it almost looked like an effect you would see in a regular romance, you know, like yeah. a, a seduction scene or people falling in love. And yet it's a business thing. Sigourney Weaver deserves extra
0: special mention as well, alongside Philip Bosco, Harrison Ford, Joan Cusack, Melanie Griffith, yeah. all of the, the the main- David Duchovny. <laughs> Sorgoni <laughs> uh, Weaver too in what could be a one-dimensional evil character much like Jack Trainer is imbued with a certain insecurity Mm-hmm. So is she. And we see her at different times in the movie trying to use her sex and her charm to get what she wants in the corporate environment. We see her trying to finesse Tess. We also see her not supporting
1: Tess in taking mm-hmm. her idea. And then we see her try to cover that up. Like I, I was going to yeah. say, like I found her. Did you find her cover up compelling in the moment? In the moment I did. I yeah, was Yeah, Do like, you think I-
0: that scene is played that way to sort of Throw in a little moment of doubt, or is she just so good? I think what it is is she's so good at understanding instantaneously that Tess has been in her home and has seen and probably listened to this. I need to create a plausible deniability. Mm -hmm. That's what I think she's doing. She's so good that she's creating a
1: lie to explain her earlier lie. 100% 100% I agree but, but I think that the way that it's that she plays it that Michael Nichols films it it did at the moment think like yeah. oh maybe this will be about yes. Tess realizing she shouldn't have been so yeah she shouldn't have been so distrustful herself, of another distrustful. woman yeah. and that it was a type of you know yeah. her first scenes with Tess I bought so all that stuff I mean yeah, I'd heard of the movie so I did know it wasn't going to work out in the yeah. end and yet at the same time you can't get a straw in what she's saying. Everything she's saying is right. The way she's treating mm-hmm. Tess is wonderful. And it's only sort of slowly yeah. that you kind of realize how kind of shallow that that goes. Yeah. Such an interesting mm-hmm. way to make your way in the system. Do you mm-hmm. become cutthroat? Do you take advantage of everything? Or do you sort of keep your nose down and try to do things by the book? Yeah. They're, they're very they're two very different poles, these two women. And it's it's really interesting to see both of them... Uh, play out, even though it definitely falls down on...
0: Well, even in that scene that we just played with her dancing with Trask, Melanie Griffith isn't playing it sexually. She's not coming on to him. It's easy when you're watching the movie to sort of just get that from the scene. But if we're going to analyze the film, we realize, talking about it, that there are choices that are made that either tip a scene into flirtation or away from it. And in that scene, where it's very close, it's very close up... Very subtle things, the way they look at each other, Mm -hmm. what part of each other they're looking at, can either lend that like an erotic tinge, or I think the way that it's purposefully played is she's wowing him with her mind and her ability to say, I know all this because I've done my homework, and she has. And she plays by the rules until she recognizes that there are no rules, and then she gets punished for not playing by the rules— until Catherine Parker gets her comeuppance. For, for having broken the rules. For having broken the rules. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, and this is the part that I think you're referring to, which I think is kind of an interesting end that I want to ask you about after we watch this. This would be the final clip.
2: any right, we really don't have any more time for fairy tales. Well, Miss Parker, let me ask you a question. How did you come up with the idea for Trask to buy up Metro? How did I, uh, well let's see, the, um... The impulse. What led you to put the two together? Well, you know, I would have to check my files. I can't recall exactly the, um... Well, generally. It's not as if it was in the mainstream. You know, it would have to be the, um... Jack, help me out here. and I beg your pardon, but if... If you are insinuating. Miss Parker, if I were you, I'd go to your office and take a long last look around. Because in about five minutes, I'm going to see to it that you get the boot. But good. Oren, this is a simple misunderstanding, and I. You cannot. I can, and I will. Now get your. What did you call it? Bony ass.
0: Right. Bony ass out of my sight. That's the part I have to admit, when I watched it again last night, the idea that this powerful white corporate man smacks down Catherine Parker, it feels a little strange. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it? Did you have that at all? Or no? You know, I mean, I know, I mean, we want her to get her come up and send she totally. does. I get that. But like I think when we watched the movie originally, you're probably like, yeah. Like yeah." now it's it's kind of like it it can it plays a little bit like a reinforcement that the system is still in
1: place. <laughs> totally, and I think the very... You know, I was reading uh, an essay that was saying that there's an ambivalence about the ending, about her place in the system. I did not get that at no, all. I like, I understand that. looking I back... I love that be, ending. In, in a sense, this is a very small-c conservative film in the sense that it's like, here is the system, and if you work hard and if you keep working, eventually you will get some kind of break. Probably people looking would say no, but that's, I think, the, I think that is the point of the movie. Tess is defined by her working hard and her sincerity and her wanting to better herself, which, you know, is a very sort of Reagan-esque ideal. And again, maybe it looks looks like a fantasy now, but I really do think that that's, that that's what the movie is is positing. And I think it plays everything so much like a fairy tale or like a, um, almost like a Shakespearean comedy that, you know, he, like you said, he embodies the system, Trask, and it's just about who can convince him better, and he... Provides almost like a Deus Ex Machina. It's whoever, whatever he decides, this is how it will be, and now you will be elevated to a boss. Uh,
0: Chris, you know, uh, I'm just struck by the differences between us because I realize, you know, I, I guess I miss the part where it's a Reaganistic du duex ex machina Shakespearean. I, mean, I think on. it
1: works entertaining on its du, own. But what's the term? Dukes Deus Ex Machina. It just means like when two God, gods. It means God in the machine. When somebody comes and says, you know what, all of these <laughs> complications. I'm I already said it right.
0: I yeah, it. Yeah. Philip Bosco is so great in that scene. He embodies the ability to switch on a dime when he gets imperious on Catherine. And it's, I think, part of also Sigourney, the way that is shot, the close-ups of Sigourney Weaver's face and letting the emotions play across her face as the scene unfolds when she's still trying to engage in the theater. And when she gives up the ghost mm-hmm. and says, Orin, if you are insinuating, at that point, she's dropping the pretense that she didn't lie. And she's just yeah. basically now going to try a different tactic. I lied before when I said that was the last clip because we have to play a little <laughs> bit of this clip for two reasons. One is how great the actor Amy Aquino is in this scene who plays Tess's new secretary. It's such a funny, interesting scene because in most movies, at the end of the movie, you would you would feel that your protagonist has been changed, has has gone through all of the things we just saw and is now a more steely competitor ready to do battle in the wilds of Wall Street. But in fact... In this scene, we're shown and told that Tess is the same person as she was at the very beginning of the movie, and in a charming way.
3: Uh, Ms. McGill. Yes. That's your desk, in there. I don't think so. Oh yes, I sit out here. Sorry, I thought the secretary would sit out here. That's right, I'm the secretary. If it's okay, I prefer assistant. You've got a 10 o'clock meeting with Slater from development here, 11 o'clock with Donahue from logistics, his office on 23, and lunch with Mr. Trask, his office downtown, one o'clock. It's all right there in the computer. Just hit shift S for your schedule. Um, when I saw you, In here, on on the phone, with your feet up, I figured this was your office. I'm sorry about that, Ms. McGill. It won't happen again, ever. It's okay. Maybe now would be a good time to go over what you expect of me. I, uh, I expect you to call me Tess. I don't expect you to fetch me coffee, unless you're getting some for yourself. And, um. The rest will just make up as we go along, okay? Okay. I'll be right outside if you need anything. Fine. Sin. guess where I am?
1: so good I long for the day when I just had to hit Hit shift shift S S to get your schedule
0: schedule. (laughs) how great is that scene it is great it also speaks to the still like raw insecurity and disbelief that this is all happening so whatever like Leninistic take you were reading that proclaimed her some cog in a vast machinery or something I don't gonna buy that
1: well, I actually, I think, but everything supports that in the <laughs> sense that she's like, what, me? I couldn't possibly, and she, um, it is just by not, by having worked within the system and having mm. got the favor of the- That's the, the, the Reaganistic the quality? I get, again, oh, like I said, on, I don't Chris. know that I believe it, but I can, I can see- Don't it even mention back that stuff, it, will like, you? Like, can, you can you just discard that when before you even get here? When it, was, uh, when it was made. Here's one of the I things- I don't want to hear the quote. Okay. You're going to like this. All right. One of the many things, this is from Janet Maslin's review. One of the many things that mark Working Girl as an 80s creation is its way of regarding business and sex as almost interchangeable pursuits and suggesting that life's greatest happiness can be achieved by combining the two. Bullshit. Oh, I like that. That's such a lazy take. There is an element of love story in there between her and uh, Trainer. Of course, but they're actually in love. It's not a transactional love. Oh my God, but what I'm saying is that, but it's the two are overlapping. I I think what it's saying is their first kiss happens when they sort of close the deal at the bottom of the stairs. And I, I loved that. I thought that was Mm -hmm. great because she has achieved something. They've both proven each other they're equal and they're excited by being involved in this. Going back to the wedding, um, a family wedding and the business was overlapping in a way that was not sexualized, but it was personalized in a way that did end up working. I thought reinforced that.
0: Chris, are you ready to move on to Rants and Raves?
1: Yes. Yes. Do you have any? Yes. Please actually. don't let them be
0: about going. I'm to I'm not a going to talk about Hilma Clint, uh, even though that
1: was an amazing. I beg you, show. not today. Did you see the "fuck fuck Jerry" video by Vic Berger? No, I haven't seen so, that. So, uh, for listeners who don't know, Vic Berger is a is a comedy video editor who makes now these unemployed
0: sort of, through the that's right.
1: through the digital media layoffs occurring yes. at Super Deluxe Super, Deluxe. Super Deluxe, which yeah. is a Turner property. And he is great. He is a he edits things down and finds like incredible. He finds the most subtle thing to blow up and will often repeat them and sort of but uh, Ad infinitum. He is a very very funny and incredible. So he now did one about the guys at Fuck Jerry, which then uh, I guess had to be taken down from YouTube. Oh really? But wait, does he use
0: their interview things from the Hulu documentary, or is um, it something else?
1: It's not that he used things from the documentary. Okay. But I think they were just calling it sort of slanderous, and YouTube uh, said to to take Take it it down. down. Uh, so now it's up everywhere else, but YouTube's on Vimeo, and I found a link on the AV Club. He's he's sort of the social commentator of the digital media generation. Yes.
0: Yeah. He gazes inwardly upon ourselves. Yes. And as such, we learn about ourselves. <laughs> By gazing <laughs> at us, ourselves. Um, and I didn't know too much about the whole fuck Jerry. The controversy is that fuck Jerry reposts other people's jokes on their social media accounts, and- for some time now has been doing so with attribution as opposed to just showing the meme or the joke that you made and claiming it as their own. The Jerry media empire is suffering some dents as a result of the Hulu documentaries, which I think is a good thing. Although, as I said, I'm terrified of those guys and I do not want them to come after me. (laughs) Chris, do you have any other rants and raves? No. I have only one, which was the new Stephen King Pet Cemetery trailer came out. (sighs) it's pretty fucking good. Yeah. Now, as we all know, you can make a great trailer out of any Stephen King property. The challenge lies in making something that doesn't suck. I have to say, this looks pretty damn good, Chris. Yeah.
3: In the woods today, L.A. discovered a charming little landmark.
2: The Pet cemetery. place to bury our pets and remember them might seem scary, but it's not perfectly natural. Just like dying is natural.
0: The whole town's been using this place for generations. Folks make a kind of ritual out of it. The reason why it's so good is there's a terrifying shot, which consists only of an open road and a cat. And it works. Um, It has John Lithgow. It has the guy that I always think is one of the Edgerton brothers, but isn't isn't, the other guy. Jason
1: Clark. Jason Clark. Also, I believe from- Australia, Australia, New Zealand, down under.
0: But interestingly, I just wanted to tie this back into the show. So the film rights for Stephen King's novel were originally sold to George Romero for $10,000 in 1984. Um, And King had declined several offers to do a film adaptation, but Romero eventually had to pull out of the production as he was busy with- Monkey Monke shines. shines. So, um, I don't remember. I remember seeing the 1989 version of Pet Cemetery when it came out. I saw it, uh, I think, I about think it's two kind months of ago. I right? Like, is it, it's not good per se, but is it worth
1: seeing? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's directed by a woman, which is, which is so, cool. Yeah. For the a horror movie. The story is so good. Yeah. Some of the performances are good. It has um, Fred yes, Gwynn. Yes. Fred Gwynn gets sliced by the. But well, really I mean, really everyone knows, knows the story, yeah, don't they? <laughs> And, you know, the, the actual writing of it and that ending is really terrifying. There are parts of it that are not good, like the main lead guy is... Like a soap opera actor or something? <laughs> like Harry, is it like Harry Hamlin? <laughs> it's somebody who I think had like a syndicated TV show. You're talking about Dale Midkiff? He played Darian Lambert in Time Tracks. Exactly, yes. Time Tracks. Anyway, I, I liked, liked it. I liked it a lot. I think it's worth it. And actually, a friend of mine was telling me that Stephen King almost... I might be exaggerating. No, wait, if Stephen King liked it, that means it's bad. Well, that the book is great and that it's one of his. Oh, you never read the book? I haven't read the book. Oh, yet. my God. That it's one of his most oh, darkest absolutely. and most harrowing. Absolutely,
0: fantastic. I can't believe you've ever read Pet Cemetery. It's so good.
1: Yeah. Really? I just good. finished The Shining. I'm on a bit of a. You, you finished King. it? I finished well, it. Now definitely. Move on to The Stand. No,
0: no, no. Don't do The Stand yet. Because that's a that's an
1: epic yeah. undertaking. I, when I got it from the library, I was like, "Oh no!" <laughs>
0: it's like a thousand. It's like twelve hundred pages. Yeah. Why don't you just knock off Pet Cemetery as a little palate cleanser yeah. and then get into the stand? The stand is takes too much.
1: You want to be in a special all right, moment. All
0: right, oh. take a break.
1: Yeah. Um, um, well, Pet Cemetery, the ninety, the eighty-nine, from having seen it relatively recently, it's worth it. Oh yeah, I'm going to check it out. It's cheesy, fun. It's, I it's see in it. a sort of. Uh, It's in a monkey shines vein. Okay, that's good. I'm sometimes
0: in the mood for that. All right, Chris, let's move on to headlines. Headlines. Which the last time Matt cut me into the song, which I loved. Thank you, Matt. Are you ready, Chris? I am ready. Okay, I'm gonna start you off with a bang. From the world of politics. Ooh. A Florida politician allegedly made a habit of licking men's faces. She is now resigned. Yeah. Now, of course, Florida, so... Everyone understands. But I just (laughs) want to read a couple of the key details because it's so good. The City Commission of Madera Beach, Florida, which is a coastal community of 4,500, decided to hold a special outdoor meeting during the King of the Beach Fishing Tournament in November 2012. But things quickly got out of hand when Nancy Oakley uh, had done some drinking at the fishing competition. She spotted Shane Crawford, the city manager, and Cheryl McGrady, his executive assistant. Who everybody knows is (laughs) H.O.T. Oakley suspected them of having an affair. Using expletives, she demanded McGrady, who was supposed to be acting as deputy city clerk, removed. Oakley walked up to Crawford. She licked his neck, allegedly, and the side of his face, slowly working her way up from his Adam's apple, and groped him by grabbing at his crotch and buttocks. McGrady, who'd been standing there the entire time, told Oakley that her behavior was inappropriate. According to the report, Oakley threw a punch at the woman, but missed. Wow! Does
1: this is sound like a great moment in local politics? So she resigned from this in so, order to run for governor? Um, now, from the
0: world of human interactions with wildlife, Chris... Have you read the story of the mountain lion that attacked the Colorado runner? Yeah. And the Colorado runner, runner fucking
1: handed its ass killed to him. a mountain lion with his with his bare hands. Look, I love animals, but but wait, so you're a team runner? I mean, if I were attacked by a mountain lion, yeah, I'd love to think Okay, it was a hundred-pound baby mountain lion. Oh. <laughs>
2: right. I mean, a
0: hundred pounds. Yeah. It's, it's a juvenile. So. Now here's the interesting detail. The runner, who's been released from a local hospital, choked the cougar to death. Oh. However, when authorities arrived on the scene, and this is the point I want to make, Chris, because I think there's more to this story than we're being told. Uh The young lion's organs had been eaten. I think what happened was this runner got so into this primal moment that he just then buried his face in the opened rib cage and ripped out
1: some vital organs. I am this close to there right now. I think you could do that. (laughs) That's why you like this story. Well, you know, it did make me think actually about like, uh, you know, there was a rash a couple years ago of the uh, bath salts. And oh sure, in Florida
0: like, cannibalism battles. Maybe yeah. something
1: like like that.
0: But you know, here's my thing. You're jogging. You're in the mountain lion's territory. He's not in your territory. You're you're the one who's encroaching on the wildlife, not the other way around. I am all for the mountain lion attacking this runner uh, and ripping his throat out.
1: Wait, do you think the, the he was like off-road running? No, I don't care where he is.
0: He's in the woods where a mountain lion lives. That's where But the, like in the woods like, on a path? Yeah, who made the path? Man yeah. made the path. So, the mountain lion lives there naturally. We encroach upon his or her territory. And so, no further explanation required. Okay. Uh, You could go run on a a cinder path at a local high school track. Sure, no. If you're going to go into the woods in Colorado, take your life into your hands, Jack. Fair enough. Well,
1: I guess also the mountain lion took his life into his hands and lost. Well, I'm on team Cougar, your team guy. I am fully on the side of humanity. Really? I'm shocked. Honestly, Honestly, I'm shocked if you
0: are. You're on the side of humankind.
1: Yes. I do Mm. not think that he's like, oh, because of like nature has been despoiled because we have built houses Mm -hmm. this far out into Colorado. I should therefore allow myself to be (laughs) mauled by the mountain
0: lion. No. (laughs) Well, I see why you enjoy Ronald Reagan then.
1: Not like Mike Nichols does with his- (laughs) Oh, yeah. Love story. But yeah, mm-hmm. Theamed, uh, By love I love Ronald Reagan.
0: <laughs> I think if he has an agenda, it's a socially liberal agenda. I don't think of it. I mean, certainly Primary Colors is a portrait of a democratic politician who is flawed, but it certainly presents the entire system as rotten and corrupt, which it kind of also does in the Wall Street yeah. situation. Too. Yeah.
1: Um, and he very and much has that, immigrant that was, thing. No, and I really didn't mean to say that that was, I'm saying that he was part of the culture and is reflecting what yes. the culture was into at that time.
0: Well, Chris, my last headline for you is one that you'll appreciate because it involves you going to a museum. Ah! Okay. Art exhibit shows Ivanka Trump lookalike vacuuming up crumbs. (laughs) Have you seen this story? Yes, and uh, I know she doesn't like it, It's an art piece by Jennifer Rubel, which is entitled Ivanka Vacuuming. It opened February 1st and continues through February 17th. The public is encouraged to, quote, throw crumbs onto the carpet, watching as Ivanka elegantly vacuums up the mess. Her smile never wavered.
1: The fact that it's got that interactive element of like, yeah, throw shit
0: out. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, those were the headlines. Wow, what an entertaining world we live in. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention on the 1989 Pet Cemetery actually contributed one of the Ramones' biggest chart-topping hits, bizarrely. So, That's right. What do you got? How are we going out today? Can you not bobble it this time? No. I want you to do a clean intro. Yeah, well, outro? <laughs> outro. This outro. I want you is- to do a clean intro to the outro. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, hear it. <laughs> I won't step on it again. But- I've already done it enough. <laughs> oh, I killed him.
1: He's choking. He's turning red.
2: Tell my wife I... <laughs> well, Lennon. the airplane's got him. Oh, no. It wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast. Beauty killed the beast. Oh.